Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Today we are in the Torah section. It's called Metzorah, which means leper, and that covers Leviticus chapters 14 and 15. Leviticus chapters 14 and 15. Well, the one thing to note in this particular study here is that, you know, this sounds like a great discussion about public health. But really, what you've got here are a couple of different levels of this. You've got the things that are right in your face. A lot of them are quite distasteful in the discussions that we have here. But then you also have the level that is below it. The level of the, okay, this is something that you take out and you apply to the world at large. Because Leviticus, the book of Vayikra is written primarily to the priesthood, priesthood instructions for how the priesthood operates. But also, the priesthood are to do what for Israel beyond what they do in the tabernacle? Set an example. Teach. Teach by setting an example. So these are lessons then that go outward beyond that. So some of the things that we can look at here for uh, some important lessons from this package of the, the section that we're looking at from Leviticus 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, they're commonly a package, but in some years like this particular year, they stretch them out so they split them apart. So our last week, we took a look at these particular conditions that are under the usually Eng- the English term leprosy, but it's, uh, as we talked about last week, it's not the most correct form of what it's talking about. It, it, you'll see some translations will just call it a skin disease. That's probably the best way to put it. In some cases, you'll have it here as they were talking about with the house. It's a mark a mark put on the house. So something is marked. So that should be a flag here that when you're talking about it's happening in people, it's happening in a house, uh, there is something else going on here besides a public health discourse here. You're not just talking about public health. You are talking about public moral health. And the public moral health that can end up being a public health catastrophe for things that get out of control. I mean, we see what has happened uh, in this in this particular uh, pandemic time period, where you've had people that get disjointed from their normal their normal course of behavior, especially with the uh, kids, teenagers. They don't. They aren't able to have their normal get-togethers with their friends, go to school, etc. What has resulted? Gigantic problems with mental health. 
gigantic problems with depression. And what have those problems? Those are problems of the mind. What have those things resulted in? Suicide is a big one, but there's a lot of things that lead up to that and are subsets of that problem. So thus you see the the key issues in this place, and you see the Apostle Paul also talks about that in the context, and he's talking about in Corinthians, that in the context, that, and he mentions about um, the uh, when you celebrate Passover, that if you don't observe the body, that is why some of you are sick. You know, and it seems like a complete non sequitur in there because you don't absolve, observe the body or you are not treating what is going on here with uh, the sanctity of the memorial. And that because of that, you know, you are, you're having a moral and a mental break that is now coming into your physical life too. And it has a physical manifestation to it. Physical manifestation, you could call it as something that you're, we, we put this into a giant bucket today and call it stress. But stress does what to your body? destroys your body. I mean, it can do terrible things to your blood vessels and on and on and on it goes. And what is stress? It is all in the head. You know, unless someone is putting electricity to you or boiling you in water or oil or something like that, that a lot of our <laughs> brothers and sisters in faith have endured and suffered over the centuries. Unless there's like some sort of physical stress that's coming on to you. A lot of what we call, quote, stress, unquote, is mental. Something that is coming in through the mind. And, as somebody mentioned, the, the news, the things of the day. And we see in prophecy where it talks about, well, in the day of the Lord, people will do what from fear? Faint. Pass out. Have major uh, amount of physical conditions because of what something that's going on up in their head so like what we talked about last week with the first part of this with the section on tazria which covered leviticus 12 and 13 so with metzora talking about the leper and the cleansing of the leper you are now talking about the taking of something that has come down upon people and then we also see with houses here that has crept in and caused a problem that has a contagion to it. Now, is it something that is strictly a physical contagion? Or is it also a moral, spiritual contagion? So that people that are just within the house, you know, we might say, well, maybe they're talking about toxic mold. And so people who are in a house with toxic mold, then, then they are becoming, you know, quote, unclean. Well, that's what we need to go back and look at some of what we've seen here about it mentions uh, the elaborate rituals for the cleansing of the leper and also about this rebirth of the leper is pictured here is a type of a resurrection of the person. I'm bringing them back to life. 
as we've mentioned before, that this, this issue with what is called leprosy or the general condition of skin problems, skin afflictions, is send someone into a state of being like they are dead, like they are the walking dead. They are walking around, yet they are considered to be separated, unclean, separated from the congregation. So when we also see some of the things that related to coming back into the community, we see some shades of things that we've seen in Scripture before related to the tree of life versus the tree of knowledge. If you want to go towards the tree of knowledge to get your wisdom to actually find out what's going on in life, what are you going away from? The tree of life. So you're going after the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. That leads you away from the tree of life. So that which seems like it's good for wisdom, that you good to make you like God, actually separates you from God's presence. And we see that also in the new Yerushalayim that there will be the tree of life. Why? The garden had two trees. The new Yerushalayim has one tree. One of the the grateful blessings of it, and as you see, even the shades of it with the new covenant prophecy, that he will cover over, give us a new heart, and remove our iniquities and remember them no more. What is the tree of the knowledge of good and, and bad all about? The world of iniquity. The world of iniquity and on your way toward iniquity is sin and transgression. So that part of Earth's history is going to be removed because we will have walked away from that. So thus, what is the future then? The future is the tree of life. Is in the new heavens and the new earth, we are going to be done with that tree of knowledge of good and bad anymore. We're going to be done with that because we've been there. What's there? Disease, death, confusion, depression, malice, wickedness, all of those things. And humanity will have seen that that road indeed does just lead to death. As, the, as it's said in the East, you know, the death by a thousand cuts, we may not even realize these little things that are just, beep, 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 just pricking at us day by day by day by day. But the more that we are dragged away and enticed away from the tree of life, away from the way that leads to life, we suddenly find ourselves outside the garden. So, as we go on, we see that this section that we've gone through, uh, the first chapter 12, 
of Leviticus talked about redeeming the mother and the newborn. Leviticus 13, we started last week and left off there with the Metzora person or the person with this condition that called, we call it the leper, but someone who has this skin manifestation of something deeper that's going on. And we've seen that it talking about the diagnosing of it, the ickiness portions of it, etc. But, all right, if you decide that this is not something that is irredeemable, thus you do what? You redeem the person. You redeem the thing. We've seen it redeeming the house. What do you do with the house? Removing the stones, scraping the plaster, the things that are diseased, that have this thing on it. So, these lessons here are noting that this contagion can spread the things that we get involved with wandering after the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, those things can be a contagion that keep tearing us down and those around us down. So which gets us a good reminder to the things that we've seen throughout this book of Leviticus. The key word there is carbon. Carbon, meaning it's translated as offering or gift, and sometimes we call it sacrifice. Another word there is kodesh, for translated holy. Tahor, translated as clean. Tameh, translated as unclean. And tarat, translated as leprosy, but this skin ailment, skin condition situation. And the Hametzorah, or the, the leper. So, the reason why these things are important and why we keep stressing these things are these are the way markers. Just so, just like the condition, the Tatsarat is a condition that we need to be watching out for. The reason why it's called you're unclean, you're clean, you're unclean, you're clean, and making these distinctions, moving back and forth between this clean, unclean thing, is to see what the whole lesson of this Mishkan, the dwelling place of God being in the midst of the people, is really trying to communicate. Because this Mishkan, it is with us today. You know, we don't see it pitched out front here. We don't see the, the priesthood doing their uh, functions and services around it. But this Mishkan has always been the Shachan, the, the dwelling place, the place where the dwelling place of God is, is following us all the time. And that is why it's hugely important that we ourselves see the things that move us to clean, move us to unclean. Because as we have uh, seen before with the word tahor, tahor, when it talks about clean, it is something that when you see the functionality of it, of being tahor, you are then able to do what? 
with the tabernacle, with the Mishkan. You were able to move toward it. But if you were a Tamei, what are you not able to do? Go near it. And Tamei, as we've seen and seen descriptions here, with just things that happen in life that are, you know, not something that you specifically have done, like it talks about some sort of a discharge that may not be something that you had any sort of um any sort of role in doing. But it is still not able, you are still not able to move toward the the dwelling place of God into the presence of God. Because one of the things that the, the lesson that we have with the tree of life versus the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, the tree of life is about the giver of life, the source of life, the creator. The things that we were talking about here in this category, whether you've got some sort of a skin ailment or you've got things that are leaking, let me put it euphemistically, um, that is one of the things that you have a sign of things not working correctly or things moving toward a bad state. But in the midst of that, you've got conditions for both men and women that happen on a regular basis for men and women. So in the midst of those extremes of things not working correctly, there are the things that just happen in the normal course of, of time. But in the sense of that, you see also the dwelling place of God is a place of where there is no, how could you say it, leakage. This is a place where, uh, that's why you, you see a, a sense of where the Messiah was talking about, well, in the in the world to come, they're not going to be marrying and giving in marriage. There'll be the state of not the way things are right now. So that is why this, imp- this distinction of Tahor and Tameh, Tameh being the case of being unclean, not fit to approach the presence of God, and Tahor being fit to approach the, the presence of God, is a very important connection which leads us up to Messiah. And one of the things that we see in this particular uh, discussion, and we're actually going to be uh, jumping into our discussion here on... One of the things that we're going to be taking a look at is about redeeming. Redeeming the person who has this condition, who is redeeming the Metzora. Now, we've seen in the various things, and uh, Deborah brought that up there earlier about the, you know, it talks about the man shaving off his hair. 
and when he's cleansed. So what is the deal about the, the hair? Now, where have we seen hair talked about before? Woman's hair is her glory. Nazarite. That's another thing that we see talked about with hair. Now, what? Yes. Samson. Samson, and it goes right together with Samson being a Nazarite and a Nazarite from birth. Yes. Oh, I see. Yes. And, and see, women... Yeah, then when they talked about when they um, would conquer a certain place and they would have uh, women from a foreign country and they would uh, you know, cut their hair off and trim their nails, etc. This, this break from where you were before to, you know, you could say your new, new reality. Okay, so we see some distinguishing things about the hair for a woman being her glory with the Nazarites. You declare your Nazarite vow, and then you, um, you shave your head there at the end of your vow, and you present your hair as an offering. So here we have an interesting situation where it's talking about the, <laughs> the hair and what color the hair is in the midst of these particular things. So here you've got with the Nazarite, your hair is a sign of this is the thing that God has blessed. You could say it's sort of like your own field of your head. Like with we say with tithing, you this field is where the Lord um, blessed me with the crop, the crop that comes out of the ground. And thus we talk a lot about with the agricultural side of it that you are blessed with what grows. So here during the Nazarite, this is you're sort of looking at yourself of what is the Lord doing with you in the midst of this? What crop is the Lord doing with you in the midst of this? So thus, when you've declared it, you're kind of now seeing your progression as the hair grows. So that's why you see lots of discussions over the centuries where you see various sages will get together and say, well, you know, can you just haphazardly declare yourself a Nazarite? Um, what is a, how do you declare yourself as one? Is it just because you happen to have long hair? And it's like, no, you have to go into it specifically for that purpose and declare it as being so. It's like when, you, when it talks about in the prophets where you bring an offering you just don't show up with an offering and expect it to be accepted just because it is an offering. Because like we saw earlier with the word carbon, the carbon, the definition of it is the thing that approaches. So when you show up at the tabernacle with your carbon, that is the thing that is going to approach the presence of God. You are approaching the presence of God. So thus, when you, when you see... Oh, uh, Daniel, you have your hand up. Since you brought it up, I have a question for you. I've run across this periodically throughout you know, the years. 
of that an individual or individuals uh, stating openly or privately that uh, they are following a Nazarite vow, for example, or 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 whatever, whatever their their, their intent is or, or their philosophy. And uh, when pressed about it, they you ask a question about it, they they don't have a definitive. I'm doing this for this specific reason, or I, because I want to, you know, offer this whatever it is to God. And it doesn't. I'm, this is not an exclusive comment regarding Nazarite vows, but the question being that. So I, there are many people, many times in people's lives. I'm not sure everybody, but certain people, which they go through their lives saying, "Well, I, I want to do more for God. I want to do more of this or more of something, whatever." They don't, they don't necessarily know what it is, but they want to dedicate some part or some some component of their lives, whether it be an offering, it doesn't matter what it is. It's hard to, as me, for people to talk to me about it, it's hard to distinguish, say, okay, yeah, this is a good idea or not, or, or may God bless you or not, because it's not like God specifically called the individual out saying, go do this or go do that. It's more of a, a spiritual uh, feeling or a spiritual point to their life to think, well, I, I feel like I should do this or should do that or do or do some type of, of gift or whatever. And it's hard to, to either say, because usually when it's brought to me, it's usually in the form of a question. How can I help in this capacity? Like, well, that capacity is not something which I have authority over. So I can really tell you how to help in that capacity. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a strange strange place to be in when somebody asks me questions regarding that specific topic regarding any like an offering they wish to give not in the form of like here's funds or here's food or here's whatever it's offering of themselves like i want to offer myself to this offer myself to that i don't really know how to answer that question how do you say oh you want to offer yourself in this capacity, like I want to offer myself to God, for example, I want to offer myself to Jesus or whatever you want. I don't know what to answer them. Like, okay, that's great, good for you. I, I don't know what to say. You know what I mean? I, maybe you've run across it, but I've run across it a number of times. I don't know what to, how to answer them. Will you offer yourself to the service of the Lord? Uh, good for you. I don't know how to do that because I don't know what capacity that you intend to offer that in or what form it comes. Because God was very specific about Hey, if you want to offer, the, for example, the Nazarite vow, you want to do this for me, well, here is the methodology, the sequence which you will follow verbatim, no deviation. The deviation, it gets, it gets canceled, it has to be redone again. It's very narrow-focused, God is, regarding how things are done. And, but I've run across most people I, that deal with this issue are very open as opposed to narrow. They're very broad as opposed to specific. I don't really know how to answer them in their, in, in their quests and their in their desires. Does that make sense? Do you, have you run across that periodically at all? Yeah, correct. And one of the the things that I found helpful is just as you pointed out about the uh, thing that is uh, specific mentioned, like with the, uh, the the Nazarite vow to the things that are general, is that just like we were talking about earlier with the the carbon being the offering. Those are specifics. The first, you know, six chapters of Leviticus has a lot of specifics about what a carbon is, what you do with it, who brings it, what you offer at what particular time, which type of things there are. But those are the specifics. But what are the generalities in those first six chapters? 
the prophets get at that a lot. And it is also the thing that is underlying it is how you are bringing it. What is your moral side of bringing it? Where are you in the carbon? So the, the carbon first six chapters, those are specifics. But where are you? Because you're bringing this thing, but the thing is not just, you know, this is not just a magic charm. You bring the thing that's specifically mentioned in the first six chapters, and then that is the thing that approaches. Because you see what the response is in Isaiah chapter 1 and Psalm 51, where you see that David is reflecting on this as like, you know, these things you don't desire. Talking about the carbonote, the, the offerings. Well, does he desire them? Yes, he does. He mentions it specifically in the Torah that he does desire them. But you see the hints of it in the prophets, and the prophet, King David, mentions it also in Psalm 51. What does he desire? Broken and contrite heart I will not despise. You will not despise. So that is what is desired. So the specifics plus the general of you Put that together and you move forward. So you bring it through with the specifics that you have with the Nazarite. You're like, okay, this is what being dedicated looks like. So you say you want to be of service to the kingdom of God. You want to be involved with with more service and this and that. So just as you are very specific about your intentionality of bringing these carbonotes, that are mentioned here, just as you are very specific in doing this, so too be very specific in the service. And if you say you're going to do something, you do it. Yes, that is why Messiah is saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't start grandstanding about it. Don't start using euphemisms about it. You know, euphemisms, uh, you know, uh, making a promise upon the altar, this or that, or the other, to try to get around, um, you know, swearing in or having an oath in the name of God. No, you just like you are intentional with the carbonot, be intentional with your service. The Torah is the model of it. So the Lord wants specific things brought for specific purposes. So then, how much more then should your service, and you say, I want, to, I want to help and do this and that. Great. Approach that thing that you want to do with as much intentionality as it mentions there in Leviticus 1 through 6 about bringing your specific carbon. Yes, Anne, do you have a comment? Yes, this is a different kind of Nazarite vow on the when Hannah Hannah prayed, and she yes. was in First Samuel, um, chapter one, verse ten. She was in bitterness of her soul, which doesn't sound like bitterness. Doesn't sound like a contrite heart. But she made a vow and said, "Lord, you will indeed look on my affliction, 
and remember me and not forget your maidservant, he will gi- I will give my child, a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And so <clears throat> this is a different system in a way than what the Lord had asked for before. However, the Lord granted her her vow, and he gave her a child that she gave Samuel to the Lord, and the Lord had chosen Samuel before she even asked for him because he was such a wonderful judge of Israel, you know, after that. But her carbon was her child, so which is different, we'll say, or maybe you can add to that. Well, one of the things that it is somewhat somewhat similar you mentioned he you know he mentioned earlier that um samson samson of a, of a sort was the offering his parents offered him his parents made the nazarite vow for him yes the mother did so that is a very interesting thing that gives you a picture of the specifics that then become the general for your your life yes do you think the um, catholics a thousand years ago were misguided by being monks were they serving anything in this way other well, than learning how to make really good coffee cappuccino <laughs> uh, distilling liquor very nicely yes and other things was there any kind of a oh, endless what you can do if you cloister yourself and just amuse yourself so um I mean, I'm sure they did teach and do other things, too. I, yes. I hope so. Yes. It and wasn't all self-serving, was it? Yeah, yeah, correct. I mean, you, you see there's like all kinds of types of service. And we see actually in the Gospels there, you uh, see some examples of, um, I'm trying to remember what her name is, um, the one who came up and blessed Yeshua there in the, in the temple. Um, yes, Anna, uh, thank you. There you have an example of someone who had been in service for a long, long, long time. And that is a lot of what the Nazarites, what the Nazarites did is they were of service. Now, you could say that that was for good. The ones who sincerely say, I want to devote my life and go in and do this fantastic so but you've also had problems with some people in their approach to it just like you've had problems with shepherds that have decided they want to faithfully lead and protect the flocks that they were entrusted with the lord entrusted them with and then you've had shepherds that scattered the flocks that they were entrusted with or confused them or (laughs) you know, made a mess of the situation. So you've had those people that just wholeheartedly want to devote their whole life to doing uh, nothing but uh, service for the kingdom. Yes, uh, fleecing the flock. <laughs> yes, you got to go watch the shepherds that are fleecing the flock. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so to, your, to your question, yeah, there is definitely a role for for service now the, the the question is is that where does the service become um a self-engrandizement 
for your own self. It, it, it's the same thing with bringing an offering. You can be bringing an offering with your whole heart there. That is truly you. You've brought the specific things that were required, but it's not just you're bringing the thing, but you are bringing yourself to the tabernacle that you yourself want to approach towards God. And then there are those that just bring the thing and they think that they're that this is um, this special handshake that they need to get into the presence of God. And you see the examples throughout Scripture where that is looked on highly um, with suspect and with anger from heaven for trying to approach God like that. Why? Because that's exactly what the pagan world is about. I mean, your literature, both modern and ancient, is rife with this whole thing of, you know, incantations and such. You do the right incantation, and you can basically treat heaven, treat your deity like a slot machine. You just, hopefully, you hit the jackpot, and then all the blessings come out. You get the combination right. But you see that's the... Um, that the word of God presents the creator of heaven and earth quite differently from all of those nations. Because you can bring the specifics of what's required, but if the heart, the true intentions of the people is not there as well, then you see shortly thereafter a situation where the glory departs, you know, otherwise known as ichavot. And then the specifics get given a time out. The temple gets destroyed. The tabernacle is uh, not no longer put into use. The people go into exile. So, which actually brings us into our uh, discussion that we're uh, going here further on this. In the cleansing of the Mitzorah, you see, you know, it talks about this eight-day process. And the interesting thing is we've um, seen in previous discussions that we've gone through Metzorah, we've seen that Yeshua on a number of occasions that are recorded in the Gospels are cleansing lepers. And Luke records the cleansing of 10 lepers. But in these encounters, you see that Yeshua, after he cleanses the lepers, he then says, go and present to the priests, the offering that Moshe, Moses, uh, called for. So this is like, okay, heaven is healing you, but this, this um, account of what heaven is doing, realize that this is fitting within the whole of what heaven is doing. And that string of what heaven is doing on earth stretches all the way back from Abraham up into uh, the time of the Messiah and the and uh, the apostles. So, from here we'll take a look at this um, very interesting thing that that comes in um, through rabbinic history, and it's a very interesting opening point, especially as we're heading into Passover uh, with this concept called the leper messiah and it riffs off of isaiah chapter 53 verse 4 so from here 
we're going to go into a reading of, we commonly call it Isaiah 53, but it really starts at the end of 52 and goes through uh, 53. So as we kind of kick into that, a blessing over this Haftarah reading. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who chose good prophets and was pleased with their words which they spoke in truth. Blessed are you, Lord, who chose the Torah, Moshe, his servant, Israel, his people, and the prophets and apostles of truth and righteousness. Amen. So from here, we're going into Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, and chugging through Isaiah 53. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like the root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening of for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, His grave was assigned to wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself his guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, He will see it and be satisfied, and by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. 
Amen. So I'll just close things out here and get into a conversation about this. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, rock of all the worlds, righteous in all the generations, the Almighty, the faithful one, who says and does, who speaks and fulfills, for all his words are true and right. Dependable are you, Lord our God, and dependable are your words, and not one of your words is ever retracted unfulfilled. For you are the Almighty, a King who is dependable and merciful. Blessed are you, Lord. The Almighty, who is dependable in all his words, have compassion on Sion, for it is the home of our life. And the one whose soul is humiliated delivers speedily in our days. Blessed are you, Lord, who causes Sion to rejoice with her children. Cause us to rejoice, Adonai, our God, with Eliyahu the prophet, your servant, and with the kingdom of the house of David, your anointed. Speedily may he come and cause our heart to exult. Upon his throne no stranger will sit, and others will no longer inherit his honor. For by your holy name you swore to him that his light will never be extinguished. Blessed are you, Lord, shield of David, for the Torah, for the divine service, for the prophets and apostles, and for this Shabbat, which you gave us, Lord our God, for holiness and for rest, for the honor and glory. For all this, Lord our God, we thank you and bless you. Blessed be your name by the mouth of all the living continually forever. Blessed are you, Lord, sanctifier of the Shabbat. Amen. So this particular passage is not only looking at you know, what's commonly called the suffering servant of the Lord, but also an example of what came to be known in the intertestamental period, which is the, the big 50-cent word of the day, which just means between the time when the last prophets were writing, so kind of like where the, some of the last prophets, like um, uh, not Malachi or um, Malachi, to uh, the time of the Gospels. So that roughly 400-year period in there is this picture that came up of at least um, perhaps two, maybe more different Mashiachs. Because when you read, especially Isaiah, you see a picture of a servant of the Lord who is a conqueror. And then you also see, like what we just read, a servant of the Lord that is crushed, that is suffering. So thus, that came up the picture of these two pictures of a Mashiach. And that's why you'll see them referred to as Mashiach ben David, or the Messiah, the son of David, who is the conquering king like David. And then the Mashiach ben Yosef, or the Messiah, son of Joseph, like Joseph suffering in Egypt before he was exalted. So that is where we're, why it's a passage like this is called in um, the discussion of the Messiah ben Yosef or the, the suffering Messiah. But as we'll see here, this is also a passage in which you see uh, in later rabbinical writings also talking about this particular passage, an example of the Messiah being called the leper of the schoolhouse, which I thought was kind of a very interesting thing because as this section starts, going back to Isaiah 52, 13, 
It says, behold, my servant will prosper. Well, that prosper there is a root word that we also get, um, a corollary to it is chokhmah or wisdom from. So another way you could say this is, behold, my servant will understand or behold, my servant will have wisdom in the, in the point of this. So one of the things that you are seeing here noted is that the servant gains wisdom. The servant gains understanding through this. Now that should start ringing some bells off in your head. Because remember what an apostle said? That he learned what? That the Mashiach learned obedience. Yes. So thus, one of the things that you'll see in the, a lot of the servant uh, prophecies is that there is a parallel between Israel and there is a parallel to the ultimate Israel. Just like you see the references to um, <laughs> the example of Yeshrun, which is, means the upright one, and also Yaakov, going the picture of the... Um, the deceiver might be a, uh, the, the, the one who... Because uh, uh, strictly speaking, it's, it means the, the one who protruded out, the one who sticks out, kind of uh, causes a, a bump. That's why I was talking about he will strike your heel. It's kind of a, um, a Hebrew uh, um, kind of a play on words there and saying because a heel is what? It sticks out sort of from your foot. And it's uh, the same word there is referring to a deceiver for Yaakov. So you have that kind of a picture of Israel as the one that kind of is playing fast and loose with the, with, uh, the, the yeah, not necessarily the morals, but the um, coming up with a different plan. And then Yeshurun, the upright one. So you also see the same kind of picture with the um, des- descriptions in Isaiah of the servant of the Lord being the one that is um, referring to Israel as a whole, but also more than Israel. And that is what you see in this particular passage. So we'll move on here, just a, a note here, a, a modern uh, liberal Jewish view on a particular passage that we're going to be looking at here today, Isaiah 53 and verse 4 is what we're specifically focusing on, but this comment is referring to verses 4 through 6, which includes that, you know, he was pierced through for our transgressions and continues on from there. It says, either the servant suffering on behalf of the speakers, in other words, the guilty were not punished at all, or he suffered along with the guilty even though he himself did not share in the guilt of his fellow Israelites. The former idea, in other words, the notion of vicarious suffering, would be unusual for the Bible. The latter idea, the idea of corporate guilt, is not. So thus you see the interesting picture here that um, a, a liberal Jewish view of this particular passage is saying that, well, this is kind of odd uh, you can take this a couple of different ways here, that this is an example of the corporate 
um, suffering and also an expiatory um, suffering, that the suffering of the servant is what discharges the iniquities of the people. So that is a key question. So another view of this comes from the medieval period, and kind of actually late medieval period. It's a, a Karaite reference from uh, Chizuk Emunah, which means faith strengthened, by um, Yitzhak ben Abraham uh, Troki. Written, um, it's written kind of the later part of the 1500s. It was actually published later part of the 1600s, but this particular um, passage here, talking about this particular passage in Isaiah 53, uh, the words, Behold, my servant shall prosper to the end of the 53rd chapter concerning the people of Israel who are still bearing the yoke of this captivity and are termed my servant in the singular number which expression is used in many other places. It may be alleged that it has never been known at any period that the people of Israel have borne the sicknesses, the pains, the wounds due to the iniquity of other nations. And whatever afflictions and troubles Israel have endured came upon them on account of their own sins and not for those of uh, the other nations. In our reply to this objection, we will show first that the prophets frequently designate humiliations and adversities by the name by the name of sickness and wounds. It appears that scripture designates the captivity as attended with calamities and describes the troubles that took place during the exile under the names of bruises and wounds. But redemption, enlargement, and deliverance, Scripture depicts by the terms of curing and healing. So, a long story there short is talking about, well, this is referring to Israel as a whole, because you have examples in the prophets of um, the exiles and sufferings that happening during the exiles, and the pictures of redemption, like in um, the book of Lamentations as it talks about the coming redemption and the turning back all of these woes that have happened upon the people, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the land, being sent into a different land, that all of that is going to be rolled back at a particular point in time. So I say, well, this is kind of going with that view, well, that this is referring to the servant of the Lord being Israel itself. Well, this is a view that goes back even earlier than that. Uh, This is from the uh, Talmud, Tractate Sanhedrin, uh, the 98th section, the folio B on that. And in a discussion on what the name of the Messiah is, and you'll see it going back and forth between different names for the Messiah, one of which is Menachem, meaning uh, comforter. Well, one it talks about, as the uh, rabbis said, his, mean Messiah's name, is the leper of the schoolhouse. As it is written, now quoting from Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him a leper, smitten of God and afflicted. So 
So this is where it comes from, the, the title uh, given, one title of the Mashiach being the leper Mashiach, the leper Messiah. Now it's, you're like, well, that's kind of a strong, where on earth did they get this, this picture where they, they uh, paraphrased this quotation from Isaiah 53.4 and uh, put in, they esteem him a leper. Well, let's go back and take a look at Isaiah 53.4 in a couple of different translations and look under the hood a bit on what is happening with the uh, Hebrew words underneath it. First, Isaiah 53.4 from, um, we had just read that from the New American Standard Bible. That's the one I commonly read from. So, surely our griefs, that is griefs translated from holy, which means sicknesses. So, you can say, surely our sicknesses he himself bore. And our sorrows, sorrows is translated from machov, and machov could be translated as pain. So, and our pain he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken. Now, stricken translated from naga, which means touch, reach, or strike. Smitten translated from naha, meaning to beat down. And afflicted, ana, which is to be bowed down or humbled. So taken all together with this, surely our sickness he himself bore and our pain he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken. Now that naga is also used during the passages that we will read here soon during the Passover time when we go through and remember the Passover. There's a lot of talk of naga during that period. You see it show up in Exodus a lot, referring to plagues. And you see that as you see the Septuagint rendition that we have here of Isaiah 53.4. This one bears our sins. Now, that's translated from amartia, sins being, so when you see it in the Gospels and it talks about sins, this is the word that it's commonly translated from is amartia in Greek for failure, failing, missing the mark. So this one bears our failures and suffers pain, translated from udano, from anguish. So suffers our failures and our anguish for us. And we accounted him to be in trouble, translated from ponos or toiling. This is this is toiling that causes pain. This is like when you've worked so hard you feel like you cannot move anymore. And calamity. This is where we get into the interesting one. And that's translated from plege, which should we sound familiar? That's where we get plague from in English. So plege and ill treatment or kakosis, oppression. And uh, Caucasus is how you see it translated uh, in the Gospels when it talks about the, and quoting from the Torah, when it's talking about the, the oppressed in Egypt. You saw the oppressions in Egypt. So look at this incredibly beautiful picture that we have here, that this servant of the Lord 
surely our griefs. Now, you know, when we think about what we are offloading, when you think about the time of Yom Kippur and when we are looking for our sins, transgressions, and iniquities to be covered over, to look at this, surely our sickness he himself bore, he carried, and our sorrows, our pain, he carried. Sickness and pain, griefs and sorrows. So you see this, this picture of, like, just like we're looking at Tetzarat, where you have a physical condition, the skin ailment of, of varying sorts, this topical situation that can go down deep and completely end up corrupting a person. You know, do we then look at that and see that the things that are causing our sicknesses, that our pain and anguish, are we seeing that that pain and anguish is something that's the Mashiach bore and carried? Do we feel pain and anguish? for the things that we have done to move in a different way away from heaven. And thus, when you see this, this picture of the Mashiach being plagued, now we see what, it's kind of interesting how you see this picture of uh, the various ways that Naga is used throughout um, the Tanakh about touching, reaching, or striking. So, in, in a way that you could say that you have been nagat by heaven, that heaven has touched you. Now, this kind of a way, this touching is in a way that is bringing misery. Now, when we look at this, this picture, do we want heaven to touch us in this way? Or we we want mercy from this. So then heaven touched the Mashiach. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, yeah, Michelangelo <laughs> touching the, the finger. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, if, if the um, Nagai is what would happen with uh, Adam touching the finger, I don't, don't think Adam would be so eager to reach out for that one. Yes, <laughs> but this does, and it should really bring a, a beautiful picture as we look toward the Passover, that this is a scene of what is happening with us as we are coming out of our house of bondage and moving out, that we see this cleansing of the leper you know, that we are the one that has been, that Tatsarat has been removed from us. Because some of the things that you see that uh, we, we had touched on just previously, one of the things that is, um, that we've seen so- several examples of where this corruption 
of the tongue, corruption of the heart that is underlying this condition we call tetzarat. One of those things is called the lashan hara or the uh, the bad tongue, evil tongue. Is gets into a group of things we call kind of goes from a scale from gossip to slander, you know, to actual you used to say malicious talk. You know, slander being a form of that. But one of the things that you can see, and this is an example here from the Chofetz Chaim from the eighteen uh, hundreds, which riffed on this picture of Lashon Hara and some general categories of it. Now we can say, hey, we are seeking something that comes into us. And we are uh, just passing along the information. Well, one of the cautions that comes with Lashon Hara or to speak evilly is to see what is going on inside of us. Why are we passing on that information? And there's some examples here about derogatory. Derogatory just means that you are dragging someone down in the process of it. So, describing a person's negative characteristics to spread potentially harmful information. Now, as we get to in a moment, you can see that there's some, there are some good times to be engaging in something that you might say is derogatory, but with a specific purpose for it. You are embarrassing the person who is being discussed. So, if you... That's, why you often hear people say, you know, would you say that to his face? No, you wouldn't say it to his face. So why are you saying it behind his back? So you're going around and you're saying something to tear them down. And not only just to tear someone down, but you are garnering ill will against the person you are talking about. So they talked about poisoning someone's name. So, some things that Lashon Hara isn't would be helping somebody. So, the person that you are talking about, you are only talking about somebody to help somebody, meaning that you are talking with people who can be trusted. They are not going to take what you say and then spread it to other people to talk to other people about it, you are doing so so that you can do what? To help that person. Now, one of the things that we always have to guard with on that is the, um, how, how you may say it, the uh, surreptitious prayer request. Like, oh man, we really need to pray about it. da 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 well, we have to really be careful where our heart is at in that situation. You know, are we really working with somebody who is a, you might quote, call them a prayer warrior? They just really have a heart for prayer, but they're not going to spread it on. You're going to just be all praying together about something, but it is not something that's going to general consumption versus and I have encountered this and probably have as well, where someone will get, oh, well, we really need to pray about that after you've just destroyed someone's reputation. 
and you're not talking with someone that is known to keep confidences. So that's something that we have to really guard for in this. Because that in the sense, when we go back to this picture that we were just looking at in Isaiah 53, is this... So just as the Mashiach is like this, bearing our sicknesses, bearing our anguish, bearing our pain, so then how much more should we also look to bear people's pain, to help people, to encourage people, to move them along? So that's why you see this incredible connection over time with Tetzerats, called leprosy, etc., and something that goes far deeper than that to actually destroy someone in the process. Yes, you attack them personally in the process of it. So that's where we come to the end of our discussion here today. Any last thoughts as we close out? It's a, it's a good... Uh, Commonly call this Shabbat the Shabbat Hagadol, the the great Shabbat, the one before the um, Passover. So it's a really a great time to look at this incredibly, incredibly powerful passage here of who the Mashiach is. So when you see that description, that the apostle or um, apostle Yochanan uh, the baptizer. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who bears away the sins of the world. That's quite a powerful thing. What is being bared away? Our sicknesses, the sin that should cause us anguish, that should cause us anguish, fell upon this servant of the Lord. The leper messiah that took away what was supposed to be our affliction took that away yes pamela you have your hand up oh, thank you Jeff. i've never heard that explanation um about the jewish teaching on isaiah 53 i didn't know there was any so um, in all these years, that was the first time I've ever heard the subject discussed from a, a Jewish teaching. Thank you. Hmm. Amen. Yes, uh, Tammy, can you uh, help me out with uh, what the what those questions were? Modern day hyssop. Yeah, what's the plan? Yeah, I mean hyssop is hyssop. The modern day. Oh no, no. It's it's its, its own plant. It um you know, we yeah, I talked about it. It's got some, you know, medicinal, some uh kind of anti antimicrobial characteristics to it. So yeah. So it's it's a very interesting picture when you see those those things that are combined together and you see these varying aspects of what is involved with uh, the cleansing cleaning the Matsorat, or the one who has leprosy. You see the, the two clean birds, and very interestingly enough, there's a, a long discussion when you see um, 
and rabbinical sources about these clean birds because they go and they they focus on that word. Well, what type of birds are these? And they say, well, commonly doves. But you'll see discussions, well, maybe they're sparrows or maybe they're um, some other bird because basically they the word that's really keyed in on there is a word that is can um is variously translated one that they center on is uh chittering so it's a chittering bird and that is part of also that train of where you get from tsetserat or this leprosy skin condition to lashon hara or the evil tongue thing is part of this the chittering birds is something that you're offering so that picture of why you're bringing in a bird that just can't keep quiet all the time, just all the time. That is one of those things that you're offering. But also, you should also see some parallels in this to Yom Kippur because you're bringing two birds, two clean birds. And then one is going in the offering the one for you, and then the one set free. And you'll see some various sources as to um, why they are saying that you put the, the live bird that you're going to set free into the water also is sort of related to Yom Kippur because you see that some of these commentators will say, uh, well, the reason you put the bird in the water that also has blood in it is that you want other birds to attack the bird that you're setting free so that bird will never come back again. Similar to where you got that tradition that's not in Scripture about how the live goat on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that you set free into the wilderness, that you throw it off a cliff so that it dies so then the sin doesn't come back to you again. So, yeah, that's something that is not scriptural, but you see this, this fear that if this animal that had your, uh, your sickness sent away, that if it comes back, your sickness will come back. Or if the goat comes back, then all of everything that you leaned on to the head of that goat and sent it out, that's all going to come back again. Well, come on. This is not paganism here. So just because you send it on, the, on an animal and it goes out and it comes back, that doesn't mean your sins are going to come back. So, <laughs> yes. So I don't know if that, that helps. That, that's, hyssop is uh, just then as it was. Yes. Tammy, can you help us out with what that second question was? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. We didn't get your other question. I, I apologize. Okay, well, if that's it, we'll... Uh, uh, Alex, Alex has a comment or a question over there. Yes? Wool, um, you can use it as a gasket. It doesn't create... Mold doesn't grow on wool. Mold, wool, wool yes. Is, it's kind of antibacterial. Wool. wool. It's wool. antibacterial and yes. cedar, we all know is good. And, you know, it's, it's some, good, some good cleaning stuff. It feels clean. And doves kind of look like a clean bird. There are a lot of, <laughs> doves, a lot of nasty birds yes. out there. That's right. A lot of nasty birds, but uh, doves could be somewhat clean. Yes. Well, how would it be scarlet wool? I mean, wool is usually, unless it's uh, that uh, heifer wool. 
Oh, uh, yeah. You, you would be coloring it red. Uh, coloring it red. And it's, it, it's also kind of interesting that there's long discussions about the scarlet wool because um, it is kind of specifically mentioned in Hebrew as being like the, the red thing. So uh, you, you get this, this interesting picture of them all being tied together with this red, red thing. And you get a, a picture from that of um, blood, the color of blood. Is the cedar could be thought to maybe be that kind of also copperish red color. Again, these are uh, parables in action, things that make, should make you think of something else. Because just like the carbon that you bring to the tabernacle is really you're bringing yourself to the tabernacle. And you, with your offering that you are bringing, is really yourself that you are bringing in there. So just like when you go through these particular uh, remembrances, it is a part of how we are seeing ourselves moving through this. So like we're going to experience the Passover. How are we ourselves freed? Do we even know what we were freed from? Yeah, what were we freed from? Because some of, some of what we see here with the, the, the wood and the red and the blood you know, it can start sounding a little bit like the blood on the doorposts blocking the, the uh, destroyer coming through and into the house. So what is it that the Lord has blocked from our doorposts, the doorposts of ourselves? What is that destroyer blocked from? What are we delivered out of? Are we still wandering in the wilderness or are we headed toward the land? Some of the one of the lessons that comes from that is uh, the first generation that died in the wilderness. The second generation goes into the land. So with us, are we still wandering around in our first generation out in the wilderness? Or has our first generation of us died? So now that our second generation of us who we are, that new creation, that new person going into the land. Something to think about is Passover is coming up. So let's uh, close things out with prayer. Father God, we thank you and praise you for giving us so many lessons and pictures of what you're doing, what you've done, what you are doing, and what you will be doing. And Father, we thank you for delivering us covering over our sins, transgressions, and iniquities, cleansing us and making us whole. Father, we thank you for the mercy that you've shown us so that you took the things that should be coming upon us and you put them on the Mashiach. Father, we thank you for that great mercy that you've demonstrated to us. And Father, we just asked for that wisdom and understanding 
that you've made possible to us through the Mashiach, that you help us to grow and to be a beacon in the world around us. We can be sources of light and peace in the midst of darkness and confusion. We thank you for all these things in the name of your Son, Yeshua. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.